This is One More Thing. My name is Jason Searle. Thanks for hanging with me on episode nine of One More Thing. If you'd like, please try to drop a review on iTunes or on SoundCloud and let people know that the One More Thing podcast is entering episode nine and very close to a full ten, which will basically probably be done early August since currently I'm kind of working around the house to get my house ready for my son's fourth birthday party, which he is very excited about and has decided that he wants to have a Transformer birthday party, which is kind of awesome, but at the same time a little interesting since he rarely wants to watch Transformers or he, he has a couple of Transformer toys, which I find quite uh, frustrating, quite honestly, because one of them, is, I think you actually need to go look up on YouTube how to change it from one to the next or just get really lucky. If you get really lucky, uh, you can turn this uh, dinosaur into a transformer. And the other one that he has is a fire truck, which is the easiest transformation of all time. So you have two ends of the spectrum. One, if he's playing with one, you're happy. If he's playing with the other one, you know that you're in for a long night. But I digress. So I've been thinking about news cycles lately. And just the way that we have currently decided to consume our news and how we do it. And I've decided that I just can't handle the way that news cycles work on television anymore. Partially because it changes so quickly that the TV news cycle tends to be behind, which is insane now that that we are, it's possible for you to be doing a newscast and literally be behind the curve. I, I've been watching a couple of different shows where you have, you know, weekly shows like John Oliver on HBO, where he does his last week tonight, which I think is kind of smart in this era of news, the way that he does it, because instead of trying to be current, he just decides to do investigative journalism, where he goes out and tries to pick a major topic and, and does that and does it really well. And then he'll obviously have an opening monologue that tries to hit on some of the more current news that is going on throughout the week, which is kind of fine. It almost takes on that Saturday Night Live weekend update kind of deal, which I think is actually quite smart, especially if you're doing it on a comedy show. But sadly, when you listen to a current news, the way that it is, is it tends to come off as somewhat being behind, and therefore they've somewhat just decided that they're not going to care so much about reporting the news to you, but rather that they're going to have some talking head on there with some kind of narrative that's going to direct you on whatever path or channel you're on. So if you're someone that really likes uh, CNN or Fox News or MSNBC, you can go to that place and get fed your narrative and then you're happy. For me, it's brutal. It's like the worst thing ever when it comes to trying to digest news. I don't want to digest someone's narrative as they're telling me what's going on through their lens of what the world is going through. So I've decided I pretty much would like to move away from that. And what's sad for me is I'm a history poli-sci major in college. I was a combined history poli-sci major. And I 
like to be informed about politics. I like to be informed about what's going on in society. I at least want to know what's going on so I can make decisions and try to make better choices for my children as they are growing up in this world that we are currently living in and creating for them. But I've decided to move away from the news. And instead, I would say I get 90% of my news by Twitter. So I've decided to kind of get away from the traditional news source and instead replace it with a form of social media, which I realize is also heavy narrative. But instead of me getting someone else's decision on what's going on, I can kind of just see what certain people that are very close to a situation are saying and kind of work my way through the news that way. And it seems to be an easier way for me to start. And actually, for me, I think it's actually a more authentic way of trying to create my own narrative and then deciding what's actually going on around me rather than getting it fed to me. So I've decided to move away from the traditional news sources. And I'm interested to hear kind of what other people are doing. And, it, and this is a conversation I am consistently kind of interested with as far as how people are digesting their news. Because I'm guaranteeing most people are no longer picking up a newspaper. I mean, I can't even remember the last time I picked up, actually picked up a newspaper with, you know, ink and, and got that nice sticky black ink on my fingers because I was flipping through pages like I used to do in high school when we would get the news delivered to us every day. And I would probably look through the entire, not the entire paper, but definitely the entire sports section. And then I would, you know, flip through the news and see what's going on and kind of go on my day. Now, you know, obviously you can go and find your stuff on a different number of different platforms. If you have the, the news app, then you kind of just get the highlights and can pick on what you want and pick and choose. And if you have Twitter, obviously you can kind of follow who you want to follow. And even then you're going to obviously get the narrative that you've decided you'd like to see. So what's the right answer in an era where we're so interconnected and we're so deciding on what's right and what's wrong and how the world is going and, you know, how angry we are or not angry we are or how pleased we are with what's going on? Where is it all coming from? Is it just because our news station or the thing that we've decided is the best version of what I believe that told me today's okay or today was a disaster? Which one are we deciding is best? I don't know. And I don't know what's best, but for me, I've decided that I think Twitter is the way I'm going to go. And that sounds weird, but I guess that's a more authentic version of news. And therefore, I kind of put my own spin on it and get to see uh, from there. And sometimes I'll kind of just kind of peruse the news channels and see which ones I think might have it right, or at least are going in the right direction or the ones that are so heavy narrative that you're kind of confused by it and say, hmm, I don't think that works. So I've been thinking a lot about that and I've been thinking about also lately uh, the way that our society is going in regards to sports. Because I, I think that as a former coach, I was always very hesitant to... Uh, put myself out there and and talk about coaching or talk about youth sports, et cetera, et cetera, because I didn't want to say, okay, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to do this or that, or this is why it was 
not worth doing in the end and why I needed to move on to be a dad and those kind of things. Like I, I felt like I didn't need to explain myself. But I do want to talk about youth sports today, mostly because as a father, I felt like, okay, now that my children are growing up and probably very close to, you know, getting into Little League or um, going to gymnastics or becoming part of a team at some point, how am I going to be involved with my child's growing up? And how involved do I want to be as a coach? How much would I have liked parents to actually been involved with their kids? And how much would I have liked them to stay away and allow coaches to kind of deal with the team and whatnot? And I was going through the news, uh, ESPN, on Twitter, and I saw a headline that I really liked. uh, And it was about Alabama football. And the headline said, Nick Saban warns Jalen Hurts, Tua Tagovailoa, I'm sure I said that wrong, not to call attention to themselves. I said, okay, this sounds fun. So the, the article is basically around this concept of Saban's exhortation to his two quarterbacks, Jalen Hurts and Tua Tagovailoa, who I'm going to call Tua from now on because that last name is going to kill me. He said, I've told both players, you've got to win the team, and everything you do to bring attention to yourself or anybody even in your family that brings attention to yourself, you're not doing yourself a service in trying to win the team, Saban told ESPN on Tuesday. Nick Saban, as we know, is probably one of the most influential coaches in college football history, probably only second to Bear Bryant, who is probably the looming shadow that he's in currently at Alabama, which I think he's probably at some point going to have a giant statue there anyway, if he doesn't already have one. But if you look at Nick Saban's career, he's probably the most winningest coach in this current era, for sure. If you look at his last 10 years at Alabama, he has been in the top 10 every year and has won the championship five times out of 10. That's excellent. No one would dispute that's excellent. But with that excellence has come the fact that he also can recruit pretty much anyone, as we've seen, actually, over the past couple of years. One of the guys that live close to me that currently goes to Alabama is Najee Harris, who went to, I believe, Antioch High School, um, was probably the greatest running back in probably California history, if not one of the greatest. I'm sure uh, someone like an O.J. Simpson was probably up there as a high school running back. But uh, Najee Harris, who has also been said to have been quite upset with his first year at Alabama because he didn't get enough carries and wasn't seeing the ball enough and possibly even considered leaving Alabama to go somewhere else. And you kind of are for someone like a Nick Saban, you're somewhat a victim of your own success because you're so good. And everyone knows that if you go to Alabama, people are going to see you and they're going to see you. And because you're playing against the best players at the highest level on a consistent basis, you're probably worth the draft pick in the NFL draft. If you're someone who's able to kind of stand up to all of that talent and find your way to the top. But at the same time, one of the issues is you're going to have multiple 
incredible players. In someone like a Najee Harris's case, there's like four to five running backs, which in any other school in the country would be starters, but they're all at Alabama. So since they're all at Alabama, there's four backups and one starter. And or, you know, if you're Alabama, you might have two guys that you give the ball quite a bit, but somebody's starting that game. And all those other guys who are all Americans in high school are sitting the bench, essentially, or coming in for a couple of carries here or there and trying to leave a mark so that they can get drafted on five carries. I mean, you've seen people from Alabama get drafted on very few carries in college and end up being good pros. But that's how it goes. But what Nick Saban was saying, essentially, is... The team comes first. And if you want the team, as quarterbacks, these two guys, Tua and Jalen, if you want the team to follow you, then you have to prove to them that it's not about you. That's really hard to tell someone that you probably recruited and told them, hey, I'm going to work on getting you into the pros. Well, how do you do it? You probably have to play if you're going to go to the pros. I mean, yeah, there's exceptions. I think the only other thing that's even close to this might be USC during the 1990s and 2000s under Pete Carroll. I remember Matt Leinart was a backup quarterback for a number of years and then finally had a, I think he might have won two Heismans, if not at least one, and was runner-up maybe in one to Reggie Bush, if I don't remember, or if I remember correctly. And a guy like Matt Leinart sat behind Carson Palmer and waited his turn. And eventually he got his turn. But when you're in such a situation where you have incredible players on a consistent basis that possibly all could be pros, but they're all sitting around going, <laughs> when's my turn? Uh, it could probably breed some animosity, and that might be difficult to deal with in this setting, right? All right, I go back to youth sports. I know I'm jumping. I'm sorry. The reason all this matters to me in the context of youth sports is I think that a lot of times now, People are starting to funnel children into a singular sport. Oh, my kid is a baseball player. My kid's a lacrosse player. My kid's a football player. My kid plays basketball. Yeah, he might do some other things, but, you know, he's really going to be good at this. The, the silly thing about that, as someone who played college sports, is when I was a kid, my best sport was basketball. Until I realized that my best sport wasn't basketball. Now, I was the best basketball player in my area for a while. Obviously, at some point, someone got better than me. But my best sport was always going to be baseball. <clears throat> that being said, I am very happy I didn't just play baseball in high school. And actually, there's a number of studies out that show very clearly that the majority of athletes that do actually play college athletics were multi-sport athletes and not singular sport athletes, which is really kind of sad because currently in youth sports, it's almost like a lot of parents have decided before the kid even really has made a decision, this is what my kid is going to do. And yeah, maybe he'll do things here and there if he's got time, but we're going to spend a ton of money and a ton of effort trying to get him into this sport or that sport, et cetera, et cetera. I read an article or I was looking at Twitter actually from a couple of different people. I know Ann Killian was one of them on Twitter and she writes for the San Francisco Chronicle and she was replying to 
someone who was talking about the cost of, I believe it was girls' soccer. And girls' soccer costs most at the elite levels, costs something like six to $10,000 a year. Now that is a ridiculous sum of money to be spending on someone in a sport that if you're doing that, you're essentially making a down payment on what you think is going to be a college scholarship. Now the ironic thing with doing that is if you took that $6,000 and paid $6,000 for, let's just say, I don't know, five years, let's say from the age of 11 to 16, 17, five or six years, and you paid just $6,000, that's one year of college right there that you've already invested in your child. No wonder that parent would be upset if their child wasn't good enough to start or maybe they were good enough to start but wasn't getting a bunch of offers at the end of this deal. Why are you spending thirty-five dollars to $40,000 a year on youth sports? That's ridiculous. There's no reason for that. I played at the highest level of baseball my last couple years of high school before I went to college and played on a baseball scholarship. And I know for a fact that with all of my teams combined, I did not pay more than $500 in those years combined. Now, I know that we also had to spend some money when, when I played basketball. We had to spend some money to get to Orlando, Florida, because we had actually, at my AAU team, who had some of the best athletes I've ever played with, athletes I've ever played with in any sport, all on the same team, kind of at the same time. All of us, we had about eight to ten of us on the same team. All of us played a college sport at some point. Most of us Division One, and some of us even played pro sports later. And that team was good enough to win our AAU section as 14-year-olds and go to the Nationals in Orlando. And so I remember having to pay for that. But we kind of did fundraising and whatnot to do it. It wasn't just like, okay, we got to do this. At the same time, all of that is somewhat ridiculous. I mean, shouldn't we really have more of the attitude that kids' sports, youth sports in general, should really be about the sport itself, getting better, enjoying it? But instead, we've turned it into this, okay, college is expensive. This is your ticket. I think that's a really bad way of looking at sports. And the other thing that bothers me, especially if that's not the case, maybe you know that your child will never make it to college, never going to see a scholarship. Well, why else do you play? Realistically, I want my kids to play so that they know how to work with a team. And honestly, that goes back to this Nick Saban quote. He says, again, I've told both players, you got to win the team. And everything you do to bring attention to yourself or anybody, even in your family that brings attention to you, you're not doing yourself a service and trying to win the team. The best teams I ever coached cared more about the team than themselves. And the teams that didn't care about the team and cared more about themselves were always the most difficult teams to coach. Hands down, easy. And I think one of the things that really puts children, kids, youth in the wrong direction when it comes to sports is to dangle a dollar amount around how much you are participating in. Now, I realize sports cost money. Absolutely. 
And I get that. But if you're paying absorbent amounts of money to have your kids participate in a sport, I think you're doing it initially for the wrong reasons. And there's a better way to do it. So how do we make a better way to do it with kids and with youth sports? First of all, I think the the best way is to make sure that any team or organization or sport my child is in, the first thing I care most about is that it's all about doing it for the right reasons. I, I don't want my kid to necessarily be in this college factory type idea. Now, do I, if my son or daughter is an excellent athlete and decides that they want to do that, does that mean that I'm going to stand in their way and say, you can't play an elite sport? No, I won't do that. If they really want to do something and they really are that good, yeah, I might give them the opportunity to do that. But only in the situation where I know that they're not getting fed the line. Hey, I'm going to get you into college. Hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. Because honestly, I think that's the wrong way to go about things. You know, I've seen it from the other perspective as a college athlete. And I've seen these kids come in and get recruited to the school and come into the school and see what it's like to, to be a college recruit and what it's like to actually be a college athlete and the amount of time and effort it takes to do that. And I think a lot of kids don't even realize the amount of time and effort it takes to be a college athlete. And I wish that more kids that did these elite, elite sports had more opportunities to go and actually experience what being a college athlete actually is. And that maybe we need to do a better job of mentorship with some of these colleges that are around us and find ways for these kids, these elite athletes that are younger, to learn what it would be like to actually be a college athlete. And going along with that, how to deal with social media, how to make sure that you don't put yourself in a situation that you're going to regret in your future. But at the end of the day, one of the things I really like about Nick Saban is he's trying, even though it's hard because he's a victim of his own success, he's trying his best to make sure that his players realize it's team first. And one of the things I really loved about watching the national championship last year is that when Jalen Hurts was taken off the field, who had been a starter, had already won a national championship, he gets taken out of the game and this little freshman Tua comes in to take his spot. When Tua's throwing touchdown passes that gets them in the lead and they're going to win that game, Jalen is running down the sidelines to congratulate his teammate, like a teammate should. And now the only thing you know is that the hardest thing to do after that is realize, wait a second, everybody behind me is sitting there going, hey, you won a national championship. Why aren't you the guy anymore? What? And honestly, I think it's actually more of the problem with the people outside of the situation, outside of the team, feeding kind of this negative atmosphere, this cancerous atmosphere. And the only way that you can preserve a real team is to try to get rid of all of that and make it more about the team. And maybe, and here's my last thing, maybe it's better in youth sports and sports in general that we value what it means to be a team. And this is why, in my opinion, someone like the Warriors are the greatest team that I've seen in my lifetime. Because what you're starting to see 
is that all of these superstars are more willing to take less for the team and the situation that they are choosing to be in, that they want to buy into. And they're doing it at the possible even expense of losing money because they know they're in a better situation, have the opportunity to win. In my opinion, that's incredibly admirable. All right. Thank you. This is one of my longer one more things. Hopefully it was a good listen. If you can, please drop a review on iTunes or SoundCloud and share it around wherever you get a chance. Thanks a lot. And I am out. Wow. 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 Wow.